You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. It's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles or your device and turn to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17 is where we'll begin this morning. And we are still right at the front of Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And really, this, this sermon is something in the New Testament that we should be incredibly aware of and super familiar with. What we have in these few chapters in Matthew, we have the bulk of Jesus' teaching. It is the longest section we have in the Bible of the Son of God teaching us about the kingdom, what it looks like to be in the kingdom, what his kingdom is like, and what it means to live as one of his disciples. He's teaching us, his followers, his disciples, what we're to be like. So it's both, here's what the kingdom's like, and here's what my kingdom citizens are like. And I hope the sermon becomes something we are so familiar with Because he's really teaching us, here's what it looks like to follow me. Here's what it looks like to walk with me. It's more than just coming to church on Sunday. And it's more than just reading the Bible from time to time. Jesus is calling us to a very unique way of life, a rightness of life that stems from believing him, stems from trusting in him, and now leads into this new way of walking with him in a world that is completely wrong and in a world that is upside down. This is what Jesus calls us to, and this is what the Sermon on the Mount teaches us. It's both instruction manual and expectation manual. And these are two that we've got to remember. The Sermon on the Mount is part instruction manual and it's part expectation manual for those who are disciples of Christ. So as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of the Word of Christ. And here we are by faith, transplanted to the hillside hearing Jesus say these words by the power of the Spirit to us. And he says, beginning in verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now as we hear the words of your Son. Would his words pierce into our hearts, create an unsettling where there needs to be an unsettling, and bring a comfort where there needs to be comfort, and a rebuke where there needs to be rebuke, and change where there needs to be change. So meet us now, King Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, and by the power of your Word, we ask, and in your name, amen. You may be seated. You know, when a politician is running for office, they travel from city to city, town to town, factory to factory, farms, inner cities, you name it. And what these politicians do is they generally talk about the exact same thing 
in all of these different places. It's called a stump speech. This is what they're going to talk about wherever they go. And what do they all say in their speech? It's something like, here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's what it's going to be like when I'm in charge. Here's what your life, how I will change if you vote for me. Here's how great it's going to be on and on and on. Friends, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus is doing. He's giving his stump speech for his kingdom. Now, Jesus, he taught many things in many places. And we should expect, since this is the first sermon we have in the Gospel of Matthew, that now this is one of the things that as Jesus goes around, Caesarea Philippi, Judea, Jerusalem, Galilee, that he's going to all of these places, Capernaum, and that he's giving his Sermon on the Mount in healing and teaching and other parables, but this is the main thing he's communicating about his kingdom. Because what we have, remember, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the time of Christ, you have what? You have Israel living in the shadow of the Roman Empire. You have Herod's palace in the background. And then throughout the Gospels, we see demons running around Israel, causing havoc, doing their bidding for the prince of darkness. So there are all these rival kingdoms on the horizon, and Jesus steps in with his stump speech, let me tell you what my kingdom is like. You know what Rome is like. You know what Herod's rule is like. You see what the prince of darkness does. Well, I have a kingdom. And in my kingdom, the poor in spirit are blessed, and the kingdom is theirs. In my kingdom, the humble will inherit the earth. Not just Israel, not just the Arab Peninsula, but the earth will be yours. And my kingdom, mercy abounds. The citizens of my kingdom are merciful. They are salt and light. They forgive. They love their enemies. They pray. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's giving his stump speech for this is what the real kingdom will be. And it's not just morality pills for life. Jesus is actually trying to confiscate all of our morality pills and show us this is what the kingdom really is. Take and eat. Take and drink for the forgiveness of your sins. And like every good stump speech, there's always a twist. Oh, I know what you're thinking. There must be new taxes. Well, read my lips. No new taxes. This is what Jesus says in verse 17. Look. Don't think, what's he saying? Read my lips. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Why does Jesus say this? Is he's giving these great beatitudes and you're gonna be salt and light, all these things. And then it's like he pushes pause on the promotional YouTube video for his kingdom and says, now look right at me. I know you're what you're thinking. You're thinking it's gonna be like this and look like this. Hit the brakes. Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets because that's what everyone's going to think. They're going to think new teacher, new things, new comments. Woo, we're free from the Old Testament. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I have not come to get rid of the law and the prophets. I've actually come to fulfill them. And there's one key thing we have to do here, beloved. As you, as you listen to the Sermon on the Mount, you've got to remember that there are an original listeners there on this hillside, and we've got to think 
what did they think about all this? First, if you want to be a smart reader of Scripture, and I want everyone in here to be a wise reader of the Bible, what you cannot do is go from first century Jerusalem, hearing the Sermon on the Mount, and then immediately jump to 21st century me in the suburbs. How How does this apply to me? You've got to pause and consider the context. What did these listeners of Jesus' sermon, what did they hear? What would they have thought? Because you've got to remember, there are people right in front of Jesus talking to a group of Israelites who've been longing for this Messiah as they live hostage by the Roman Empire in their own land. And you have to remember, these are his disciples. These are people who are in. They they want to follow Jesus, and he's teaching them, this is what it's going to look like. And then you have to remember, Matthew is writing to a group of Jews who are already following Jesus and are being kicked out of synagogues, who are being persecuted, and he's telling them, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus again. So he tells them, don't think, to these original people, don't think I came to set up a new religion. Don't think I'm some new kid on the block whose ideas are different than the law or the prophets. They aren't trash, because this would be their temptation. Let's follow this guy. He's new. Or maybe we can blend him together with the Old Testament. He's got new stuff. This is their problem. And the whole Old Testament, isn't it? Let's follow Baal. Let's follow the Asherah poles. Let's follow the Babylonian gods. Let's do this. This is their problem. And Jesus says, look, I don't want you to think I am some other teacher, that I have some new religion. Jesus says, don't think I came to unhitch you from the Old Testament. Do you remember in public school, if you were public schooled, when the substitute teacher came in that day? What did that mean? Glorious day. No real work is going to happen. Especially when the sub rolled in that cart with a TV strapped down to it. Like, we are scot-free today. We have nothing to do. This is awesome. Jesus rolls in and says, hey, hey, hey. Don't think I'm that kind of teacher that rolls in and says, guess what? No work today. Old Testament doesn't matter. Law doesn't matter. Prophets doesn't matter. He is a substitute that takes our place, takes our sins, and rises from the dead for us. But he says, look, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. But what? Look at 17. Look at your Bibles. I came to fulfill them. Do you know what Jesus is saying? He is saying, I am the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish it. I am it. And as these Moses-reading, prophecy-hearing Israelites are sitting crisscross applesauce on this hillside, Jesus tells them, what the law is all about is me. What the law has been pointing you towards is me. What the prophets prophesied is me. Isaiah, me. Jeremiah, me. Amos, me. Ezekiel, me. So Jesus isn't saying, I'm starting some new religion. He is saying, I am the religion. I am what you need. The whole Old Testament is fulfilled in me. And friends, you've got to put yourself in this crowd If you were in this crowd, you would be able to see all of the heads wave back like this. Just, and you? 
You're telling us all 613 commands in the law, everything that Moses wrote, everything from Genesis to Malachi is realized in you? Here is this 30-something Galilean teacher telling this crowd, it's all about me. Jesus is the culmination of it all. It all points to him. And you know the awesomeness of this without realizing it. Why this is so cool. Why this is so important to your life. There's a new Sword in the Stone movie coming out. You should, uh, you're probably familiar with the Sword in the Stone. If you're not, I, I don't know how you're not familiar with the Sword in the Stone. The new movies, this kid is running from these bullies and he's running through the streets and he goes to this construction site and he sees a sword and a rock and he wants to fight these bullies. And so he picks up the sword, takes it out of the stone and what? He's the king. He's the one. And then in the Avengers, Thor is the only one of the Avengers who can lift his own hammer. Only one who can wield it. Calls, he calls it, comes to him. Iron Man tries, even with a special you know, glove, he can't move Thor's hammer. Captain America moves it a scooch, and Thor gets a little nervous. Hulk, he can't even pick up Thor's hammer because it's Thor's, it's his. It suits, fits him. And Jesus shows up and says, The Old Testament is the sword and the stone that I fulfill, that I lift, it fits in my hand. And the law and the prophets, it is the hammer that only I can wield. Fits me and I fulfill it. And here's why this matters to those of us who are in the 21st century and have Bibles in our laps and Bibles on our phones and Bibles that we ignore in our house. Here's why this matters to us. Because Jesus wants us to read your Bible as the Jesus Bible. Read your Bible as the Jesus Bible. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's teaching us, his disciples, how to think about the Bible as a book about him. See, Matthew 5.39 is amazing. In, in or John 5.39, Jesus says, the whole scriptures are about me. Luke 24 is amazing when Jesus says, all the Old Testament points to me, as he tells these two guys on the road to Emmaus. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, embedded in the beginning, Jesus says, the whole Bible is about me. Here's why this matters to us, who are not Jewish followers of Christ. What is your relationship with the Old Testament like? Jesus says, I want you to have a good one. What is your relationship with the Old Testament like? What is your readership like of the Old Testament? Outside of Psalms and Proverbs. Don't dread it. Don't ignore it. Don't, don't belittle it. Don't think it's irrelevant or boring. The Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. That was his personal copy, his personal book that he grew up with. It's the Bible most of the early church because the Bible was being written still. Paul's Bible was the Old Testament. So how's your readership with the Old Testament? I know it's a little ironic right now because we're doing a New Testament reading plan in our church this year. And here's why. Because I didn't think most of us would make it if we did the whole Bible. But we're going to next year, so buckle up. We're going whole thing chronologically as well. But don't think that the Old Testament and the New Testament have different messages because what Jesus is saying right here is they both talk about me. It's message, it me. And we really should call them first and second testaments because they're saying the same thing. 
And here Jesus affirms the place of the Old Testament in our lives. Look at verse 18. Why does he say, I came to fulfill it, not abolish it? Verse 17, for, here's why I'm telling you this, for truly I tell you. Notice that. How do the prophets in the Old Testament talk? If you have King James, you know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus doesn't talk like that. Jesus says, truly I tell you, because I am the Lord. He doesn't have to talk in third person. So we have God himself speaking divine authority to us. What I'm telling you is true. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the stroke of a letter, jot or tittle, you may be familiar with, will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So Jesus says, the whole Old Testament matters, every bit. And it's not to be relaxed from your life. It's not irrelevant to your life. And in Hebrew, which the Old Testament was written in, they have these little strokes on letters. They're so small. Letters almost look identical. It's really difficult language, almost identical. But one will just have this little, just a little tail. But we have this in English too. Think of the capital O in your mind. Just a big circle. Then think of a capital Q. What's the difference? Just a diagonal. You take that away, it changes. Think of the lowercase r and then a lowercase n. What's the difference? You just finish that r off. And so Hebrew is filled with these kinds of things. Letters like resh and Dalit, they have just these little changes where just this little line and it changes everything. Jesus says, those little lines, that little line in that cue matters to me. And it, if it matters to Jesus, it should matter to you. The Old Testament is relevant for your life. And here, yes, the dietary bans is where everyone goes to. Well, how come we shellfish then? Those have been lifted by Jesus. Jesus himself, if you read the Gospels, it says he lifted the dietary laws. And then in Acts, he lifts the dietary laws, saying those are done. So God says, eat up. The purity commands have been fulfilled by Jesus for us. Exactly what he says, I came to fulfill it. That's what he came to do so it could be lived out in you. This is what we must remember. We read the Bible as, Jesus, as the Jesus Bible, knowing now that these things are lived out in us. The commands to love the Lord your God, Jesus fulfilled so you could live them out. The commands to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says, I lived it, so now you can live it. He's warning us, don't pit my teachings against the Old Testament because we aren't two different voices. We are saying the same thing. Its message is me, and my message is my kingdom, my death, and my resurrection, so live it. That's exactly what he says next. Look at verse 19. Therefore, since 17 is true, since verse 18 is true, therefore, verse 19, whoever breaks, relaxes, loosens one of the least of these commands, I think he's talking about what he's going to teach in the Sermon on the Mount. And breaks one of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does, Whoever does them and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So you know what Jesus is saying? Following me is obeying me. Following Jesus isn't just coming to church on Sunday mornings. 
Following Jesus isn't just periodically reading your Bible or listening to Christian radio throughout the week. Following Jesus, trusting him, believing in his death and resurrection for you, also now leads you to obeying him. To obeying him. So if, if we can wrongly think of Jesus as the substitute teacher who rolls in the TV and has no work for us to do, there's another wrong way we can think of Jesus. We can also think of Jesus as kind of the, the cool uncle who gives us money and candy and lets us watch movies we shouldn't watch on the weekends. That's not who Jesus is either. As followers of Jesus, we can wrongly think, oh, it's all about grace. Obedience doesn't matter anymore. It's not a big deal. Jesus is all about love and all about mercy. And that's true. Jesus is all about love. He is all about mercy. And he is all about grace. But grace and obedience are not at odds with one another. In fact, grace empowers our obedience. Grace calls us to obedience. The cross brings us into the obedience of Christ. The resurrection of Christ now gives us new life. So what Jesus is saying here, beloved, is I fulfilled the law for you, and now you can live it through me. Jesus will say later in the Gospels, you can't bear fruit without me. And Jesus says, I am calling you to obey me and to walk with me, and I will work it in you. Paul says it beautifully in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, he says, Paul writes, work out your own salvation. Grammar really matters. And paying attention when you read the Bible, he notice it doesn't say work for your salvation. Our obedience, no one can get saved by obedience of their own. We get saved by the obedience of Christ. But here Paul says, if you are saved, work out your salvation. Obey, grow, put your faith to work, knowing it is God who is working in you. So when you turn from that lust, you're saying, I know, I know the commands of Christ, not to lust, and I know he's working in me to turn. When, when you feel that anger raging in your soul, you repent and turn from it, as Jesus talks about next week in the Sermon on the Mount. Knowing Christ is at work in me, both to will and to work for his good pleasure and for his purpose. Here's what Jesus is saying. I came to save you. That's step one in the gospel. And I'm making you new. That's step two. I came to forgive you, step one. And I didn't forget about you. I'm transforming you, step two. So you gotta hear me. Jesus is way against anyone thinking they can obey their way into the kingdom. You can't. Jesus is against earning a spot in the kingdom. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But... This doesn't mean that Jesus is against those who are already in the kingdom living like they are in the kingdom. Living the kingdom way. Jesus is against earning, not effort. So here's plain, simple, I think what Jesus wants us to hear this morning, and this really is the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Christians are supposed to live like Christians. You don't hear that a lot today. You hear a lot about be a dreamer, accomplish your goals, girl, wash your face, Boy, do whatever you got to do. Boy, lift weights. I don't know. Here's what Christians need to hear from Jesus from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Christians are supposed to live like Christians, like Christ. We should expect that from one another. We can get 
liberal if we go, if we start expecting anything less. And we can get legalistic, legalistic if we expect anything more. We are meant to live as disciples of Christ. And listen, if you aren't a Christian, I'm thrilled you are here. And I want you to hear, you cannot obey into being a Christian. The only way anyone becomes a Christian is by believing. You believe into becoming a Christian. You believe what happened to Jesus on the cross was for you and your sins. And then what happened to Jesus on Easter morning was for your new life. That, that's how you become a Christian. And then the rest is Jesus teaching us how to follow him. Because following Jesus means obeying Jesus. There's no other way to put it. But a lot of people in the Bible Belt, and maybe even people in this room, you want to trust Jesus for your future but not your present. That's not how this works. You want Jesus to handle your eternity, but you don't want to have him handle your immediacy. That's not how this works. Believing in Jesus leads to obeying Jesus. Not to get into the kingdom, because you are in. Not to be forgiven, but because you already are. Not to get eternal life, but because you're already living it. Not to be made new, but because you are new. And when people act like obedience doesn't matter, and I, I hear it sometimes, and I read it on the internet, and see it, people post Facebook articles, and that's legalistic to talk about obedience. We, every time I just want to say, I'm like, do you even Bible, bro? Do you see what Jesus is saying? This is how you Bible. You read it as about me, and you follow it as following me. That's the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. You think not just murdering people is enough? Jesus says, let's talk about your anger. You think just not committing physical adultery is enough? Jesus says, well, let's talk about your heart. When you're mistreated by your enemies, Jesus says, let me tell you how to, how to live. See, Jesus is pointing out, here's how my disciples are meant to live. How to pray, how to fast, how to give, how to serve, how to honor those who dishonor them. So Jesus is saying, don't minimize anything I'm teaching you. Don't break them. You should care about them. Look at what he says in 19, beginning of 19. Whoever breaks one of the least of these, I think he's getting into some of the way the rabbis would say, oh, there's more important laws and lesser ones. Jesus says, no, there's not. If, so if you break one of the least of these, he says, you'll be least in the kingdom. I think he's just giving us, at, you shouldn't read into this, oh, there are stages in the kingdom and levels. Now, Jesus is giving us wordplay. He's getting our attentions. Here's what Jesus is saying. You think telling a little lie is not a big deal? Well, then you're just living like the kingdom's not a big deal. You think getting your enemy back, getting revenge on your coworker or, or putting somebody down, Jesus says, what did that do? It brought you down. You're a co-heir of the kingdom, and yet you're rolling around in the mud like a worm. As Eugene Peterson paraphrased it, Trivialize these commands, and all you will have done is trivialize yourself. So how do you treat the Bible? This is what Jesus is asking us. Man does not live on worship songs alone. Man does not live on Chris Tomlin choruses alone. Man does not live on podcasts from John Piper and Matt Chandler alone. But on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So how do you treat the Bible in your life? Do you take it seriously? Today, right now, what is the Spirit revealing to you that you are blowing off from the Bible? 
Some of us right now are holding grudges so intense that bitterness has taken a root in our lives, and it is all we think about. Jesus is handing you a pair of shears from the scripture and says, cut it, forgive, pray. Others of us, we are hiding our lust so intensely. We are refusing to walk in the light and confess. And Jesus says, you know, I'm also called the light of the world. And I have a little light of mine and I'm willing to let it shine into your life so you can be made new. Some of us would rather spin around in our anxiety rather than pray and asking our Father for help. This is all in the Sermon on the Mount. Another way we could ask it is this. I think Jesus would ask us, does work you harmonize with church you? Here at church, we have a high view of God's word. We know the Bible's important, the Bible's true. If I started preaching from Band of Brothers biography, you'd be like, what is going on? Because that church you has a high view of the scriptures. But does work you have that same view of the Bible? Or does the Bible all of a sudden become irrelevant and distant? Does work you and home you and church you when it's when home you, when it's just your family, just in those walls, no one else, no other people are around, is home you and church you the same? High view of God's word there. High view of honoring Christ's commands. Beloved, Jesus says, don't relax them. Don't downplay them when it's just you at night watching TV when everyone else in your house is asleep, when you're traveling for work, when you're at the gym and it's just you and no one else is around. We wouldn't dare relax the theology of the Bible here. It's true, it's vital, we know it. But how does it translate into your life? We can get so caught up in learning Scripture, especially a church like ours. We have our Get Trained classes signed up beginning today. And I hope the table is swarmed, and I hope we have to add more classes because so many of you want to take some of these classes. But we can't think that we're just here for education. What Jesus is saying is, you hear my word and you do it, that means you enact your education. Your discipleship is meant to be a demo. You are, if you are a disciple of Christ, you are a living and breathing demonstration of what it looks like to live with a crucified and risen Christ. You enact your education, what you've learned from the risen Christ. Learning and doing. Learning and doing. And teaching others to do the same. Look at 19. He talks about teaching others. Whoever teaches others to break these, or whoever teaches others to do these, will either be called least or great. Jesus says, you want to be great? Teach people to walk with me. I doubt any of us are blatantly teaching. Oh, lust isn't a big deal. None of us are blatantly teaching. You can murder people in your heart. None of us are blatantly teaching those things. But what is Jesus going to say? Some of us are covertly teaching these things. See, discipleship isn't just taught with our words. It's also taught and caught with how we actually live. What are your children catching from you? What are they learning from you on how to pray? Are they learning to only pray selfish prayers? Are they learning that prayer is just something you do before meals? And that you say the same repeated thing with no heart, with empty, meaningless words, like Jesus says you should not do. Heap up empty phrases. 
Thank you, Lord, for this food to the nourishment of my body and our bodies for your glory, Lord. Amen. Is that the only prayers they hear? Do you ever pray for miracles? As though our food wasn't going to nourish us? Some of us do pray for miracles. Lord, may these donuts be the nourishment of my body. We need to pray for other miracles. What are your children catching on how to treat their enemies? For how you talk at the dinner table when you think they're not hearing? How are they, what are they catching how they should view marriage? Giving, serving others. What are your friends learning from you about the commands of Christ? What are the people in your small group, those in your family, those closest to you, what are they catching how you view Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says, this matters because you, my disciples, you are a walking translation of the Sermon on the Mount. So what is being communicated? And look at how significant this is. Before Jesus goes into all of these things we're going to get into, murder in the heart, adultery, divorce, lying, oaths, honoring, giving, praying, fasting, judging one another, our possessions, anxiety, all of these things. Jesus says, do you know why all of this matters? Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Jesus just said, my disciples better be holier than thou. Now, I know you, you may have heard that phrase, holier than thou. And it's typically used to speak of Christians who look down on people because they don't live you know, right lives and they look down on them, they're arrogant. Yes, that kind of holier than thou, Jesus hates. And we should all hate it. Jesus actually condemns that in the Sermon on the Mount. But there is, I'm just using the phrase to get our attention, there is a right holier than thou. Jesus just said it. Look at what he said. I tell you, unless your rightness, your righteousness, your right livingness before God and men surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, unless you are, if you are not holier than thou, than the scribes and Pharisees, you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. He flat out says, my disciples are holier, have more rightness, more right livingness of life than the scribes and Pharisees. If you were in the crowd, you would have been able to hear the gasps. Because the scribes and Pharisees, these are the professional righteousness chasers. They view, we view them as the villains. We see scribes and Pharisees, we're like, boo, hiss, bad guys. But to them in the crowd, they look at them as they're the elite they're the seminary professors. They're the pastors. They're the ones that wear boxes of scripture on their foreheads. They're the ones that tithe on their spice racks. Did anyone bring any Camino to tithe on today? No one weighed out 10% of their mint or dill or salt to tithe today? The Pharisees did. Taking out their kitchen scales. How much cumin do we have, honey? All right, we've got to tithe this much to the synagogue. These guys were intense on trying to follow the law. And Jesus looks at the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the scrubs of society like us, and he says, you got to be better than them. You have to. And if not, you don't get into the kingdom. You understand how everybody would go, what? How? 
How are we going to have more rightness of life than them? And now I want to hit the brakes, just full on, tire screech, stop. Because I know some of us think we know the answer. Here's how we'll be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. If we believe in Jesus, he gives us his righteousness. That's it. Jesus, he gives us all of his righteousness by faith. Boom, done. Let's go to Chili's. That is true. But that's not what Jesus is talking about right here. You got to hear me. That is true. By faith in Jesus, he gives us all of his righteousness, and we do surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Here's a, here's a second rule for reading your Bible wisely, when, especially when you're reading the Gospels. Don't jump to Paul too quickly. So this first century people, they don't know who Paul is. They're sitting on the hillside. They're hearing Jesus, and they're not going, oh, he's talking about what Paul's going to write in like 40 years. No! They're hearing it and going, Jesus really wants our lives to be better. Jesus, he's telling us, we actually have to have the right motivations that they don't have. He's going to get all into it in the Sermon on the Mount. The scribes, Pharisees, they love to pray and be heard. They love to heap up empty words. They love to make their faces when they're fasting gloom. They love to post on Facebook, oh, I've been fasting so much, pray for me. They love, so he's getting to the motivations. So Jesus is saying, no, my disciples, there is a real rightness of life that you have before God and others because you're mine. Because I'm teaching you. You're walking with me. Because you're bearing fruit. This is all the analogies Jesus also uses. You can tell them by their fruit. If they don't have fruit, you cut it off, throw it in the fire. So what we see in the gospel is the Pharisees, the scribes, the ones that are so impressive. Jesus says they're the hypocrites. They don't actually care about honoring God. They don't care about loving their neighbor. They only care about themselves. So he tells his disciples, you, you should have more fruit than the fakers. And you will. So ask yourself in your life, shouldn't I have more fruit than the fakers? Shouldn't there be more rightness of life about me because I've been crucified and raised with Christ than my pagan coworker? And why is it sometimes, and this is a, a damning fact sometimes on the church of Christ, that sometimes we treat each other harshly than the world treats us? Jesus says that's not the way it's supposed to be. Sometimes some of the nicest people we meet are unbelievers. And why is it a running joke that the Mormons are nicer than us? It should not be. Jesus says there, you must have more rightness of life than me. And you will if you are my disciple. You will do it imperfectly, but I will teach you. I will walk with you. And if you don't care about this, if you just want to come to church and you just want to get to heaven, make sure you make it there. Jesus says you should expect the house of cards to come crashing down at the end of your life. The last thing, friends, that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 24 is this. Everyone who hears these words of mine, everything I've just said in the Sermon on the Mount, and believes in them and studies them and parses them and highlights them, no, and acts on them and does them, believes and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Then the rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house. But what? Yet it didn't collapse. 
because its foundation was the rock, me. But Jesus says there are two people listening to the Sermon on the Mount, and there are two people listening this morning. But everyone who hears the words of mine, they heard it too, and doesn't act, doesn't do, doesn't have rightness of life, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, the rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, and pounded that house, and it collapsed. And it collapsed with a great crash. Jesus says, my disciples, you will be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. You will live with rightness of life, and I'm going to teach you. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaching us how to follow him. Here's how you love God and neighbor. Here's how you handle your lust. Here's how you handle your anger. And what did Jesus say at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that Pastor Barry talked about last week in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Rightness of life. You want to live? Jesus says, are you hungry and you're thirsty? Jesus says, I've got it for you. And if that's what you hunger for, Jesus says what? You will be satisfied. I will give it to you. It will be yours. And you will go, thank you, Lord. That's what I want. I want to live right. I don't want to be addicted to that. I don't want to be given to that. I don't want my marriage to be that way. I don't want to speak to my kids that way anymore. Lord, I want righteousness. And Jesus says, it's yours. But if this whole, I got to be more, I got to do this stuff, I got to obey. If that's just irritating to you, then Jesus says, you should expect a great collapse in your life. Because my disciples, because of my cross, because of my resurrection, they are declared righteous, and now they will live righteous with me. And that's the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It's more than a stump speech. It's Jesus teaching us what it looks like to be in the kingdom of Christ, how to be a disciple that makes disciples and makes much of Jesus. I hope that's what you want because that's what Jesus offers. His kingdom, his new life, lived out now. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.